Okay. What the hell has a leopard got to do with critical care? Hmm. Gavin and I do a lot of talking over this one. Hello and welcome back to the Critical Care Practitioner podcast. It's nice to be able to talk to you again. This is another episode with my friend Gavin. Uh, We seem to be doing a few of these, but uh, it's working well for me and it's working well for him. And I hope it's working well for you as well. I have had some feedback from social media, a few people saying um, that it's working well for them as well. So that's great. Um, What's a leopard got to do with critical care? Well, when it's the leopard's trial, um, it's got quite a lot to do with critical care. So this is the paper we break apart this time. Um, Go ahead and listen. I hope you found it useful and we'll talk afterwards. Hi. <laughs> We're laughing, Gavin and I, because it's the third time we tried to get this started. Uh, Gavin can't seem to get hold of the technology at all, so I'm blaming him. Um, Jeez, we are sir. reviewing uh, a paper called Levosimending for the Prevention of Acute Organ Dysfunction in Sepsis, and this was um, released in the New England Journal of Medicine um, this year, um, October of this year. And it's a paper that's been produced with um, some esteemed names attached to it, Prof Gav Perkins, Mervyn Singer and Danny McCauley to name three, um, all of whom I've met and know, but I'm sure there's a few more famous names amongst that lineup as well. Um, Gavin, Levo Cemented is not something I've ever used, but I gather that you have encountered it in Heartlands Hospital. Um, yes, but only within the um, context of the leopard study in itself. Uh, it's we, we pretty much uh, fed straightforward with the drugs we use. It's no adrenaline and adrenaline the occasional bit of debutamine vasopressin. It's not a drug I've really come across at all in, in any of the hospitals I've worked in. It's very much like the uh, it's working alongside the NORAD, the vasopressors and the inotropes, but this is uh, this is calcium channels we're affecting here. Yeah, so this, this isn't a catecholamine, so it's a very, very different pathway. Ultimately, your catecholamines are increasing your interest cellular calcium inside your sarcomeres. However... Levosimendin doesn't necessarily increase your calcium, the, the calcium, but it does increase your cardiac myocyte sensitivity to calcium. I can't really tell you much more than that, really, in, in terms of how it works, because it seems to be fairly unclear as to um, um, okay. our understanding of the pharmacokinetics of it. OK, well, we don't want to go into pharmacokinetics because the whole point of this is just talking about the, this particular piece of research and trying to help. Um, so this, the whole point of this podcast is really is to help us understand how we break down a item, uh, an article, a research uh, trial, um, to whether it be a good one or a bad one. And we use the CASP study, uh, sorry, the CASP tool. Uh, and again, for those of you who are not familiar with that, you can just type in www.casp-uk.net and that will take you to the CASP checklist. And that's literally what I've got in front of me now. And that's what we use as a tool to to go through it so let's crack on and make a start shall we so this is a double blind randomized clinical trial um so i'm using that casp checklist for randomized trials Um, and one of the first questions it asks is did the trial address a clearly focused issue so the issue can um, can be broken down is it focused is it is it focused in terms of the population studied, the intervention given, the comparator, and the outcomes are considered? So what do you think to that, Gavin? Is that something that's reasonably obvious in this trial? 
Yeah, it's a well-focused question. We've got a specific drug and a specific patient population with a disease type. Uh, it's well-defined and you're very clear just from the title in itself who, um, who this um, study is directed towards. Working my way through it as we go. So it's about adult patients who had septic shock. So it's, it is aimed specifically at patients who are considered to be in septic shock. I'd yeah. be interested to know what their definition of sepsis and SERS and all the rest of it is I don't think it goes into that necessarily does it and presumably this trial was started before QSOFA game came into being yeah its definition of shock really centers on the surviving sepsis campaign definitions really right so th these patients heard they've been treated for at least four hours and yeah. they've re received vasopressors for at least four hours and they'd already received um, a, a reasonable amount of fluid on the basis of the surviving sepsis campaign guidelines. So I th think it's quite clear in terms of um, what their definition of shock was. It, it's just they, ha they haven't delved into it deeply because they simply said that, that they've used the surviving sepsis campaign definitions of septic shock. And it does say that patients had to be recruited within 24 hours after meeting the inclusion criteria. So, you know, there couldn't be a long period of time between them developing this sepsis and them actually being enrolled into the study as well, because presumably that would uh, confound a lot of the results as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the intervention given, the intervention is that patients were assigned to receive a blinded infusion of either levosimendin or placebo for 24 hours in addition to standard care. So, you know, no bolus loading doses given. I mean, that's fairly, fairly straightforward, isn't it? The administration of levosimendin or placebo was started at a rate of 0.1 mics per kilo of body weight per minute. And in the absence of rate limiting, side effects was increased after two to four hours to 0.2 mics per kilo per minute for a further 20 to 22 hours. So that clears up the intervention quite clearly. That tells us exactly what they were doing and to whom they were doing it. And I'm presuming it was just a 50-50 split of the trial. How many did they get in the trial? Yeah, they had oh, oh, 516 patients. So 516 patients were included. Yeah. Um, it was powered to detect a difference of 0 0.5 on the SOFA score. And they actually added um, power, sorry, added patients to the recruitment to um, account for withdrawal of patients or withdrawal of consent or dropout. Yeah. Um, so they're actually over recruited by 16 patients. So that means that, you know, presumably they had enough patients to, to try and detect the difference that they were looking for, should there be one. So the powering study is quite important, isn't it? And this is something um, I think the listeners need to appreciate that the, the point of powering the study is, you know, it's all very well trying to detect a difference. But if you haven't got enough people in your study to detect that difference, then whatever results you get aren't necessarily going to be that valid, aren't they? I'm not necessarily saying that in pure research terms, but I think that sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's a fairly persistent problem, particularly in intensive care, isn't it? That we have lots and lots of small studies, less than 100 patients, lots of small drug studies with 50 patients in them. And then they're not really designed to detect the difference, the differences that we want. In many respects, they end up just muddying in the waters as opposed to really giving us any clear answers. Yeah. Um, but this is a well-powered study. The thing that's very different with this, it took a little while to get my head around, is you know, the majority of these kind of studies are looking at an organ failure or they're looking at mortality. But this was actually directed at a change in SOFA score, which took me a little while to, to kind of get my head around, really. 
and and the the sofa score takes into account an awful lot of factors as well doesn't it so encompasses cardiovascular neuro are their neuros taken out of it because most of these patients are ventilated so the neuro assessment isn't necessarily applicable um renal liver um, and respiratory so yeah. it was trying to detect whether there was a difference in the organ failure of these patients or the severity of the organ failure of these patients rather than mortality which i've found a little odd to try and understand the, the rationale as to why they directed it that way Hmm. They were appreciating a lot of studies to try and really find a mortality difference. You need huge numbers. The intensive care really does struggle to get the kind of numbers needed for good, good power for mortality. Okay. Uh, and it was a single centre or multi-centre trial? That is, it's a multi-centre UK-based trial. Um, I think we had 34 centres involved, okay. of which Heartland's the hospital I work in, was actually the second biggest recruiter. Right. Okay. Okay. There are Thirty-four uh, ITUs across the UK. Yeah, that's always helped by having somebody like Prophet Perkins work on site, isn't it? I can imagine he'd be driving <laughs> yeah. that quite hard. Right. So one of the other questions is the outcomes. So what outcomes were they looking for? And it says the primary trial outcome was the mean daily sequential organ failure assessment SOFA score, while the patient was in ICU as measured from randomization to a maximum of twenty-eight days. Uh, daily SOFA score after baseline was calculated for each patient on the basis of five organ systems. Uh, neurologic system wasn't included, as you say. Daily scores were totaled for each patient's ICU stay and divided by the number of days that they remained in the ICU in order to calculate the mean SOFA score for that patient. So they were just looking for a drop in the SOFA score or were they looking for a drop of a particular value? They powered it to uh, oh, detect a drop of 0.5 point point drop they yeah. were looking for. I see a that. A half point down. drop in, in, in the overall score. But um, I, I really don't know whether that is a, a patient-centred outcome. And when I say that, I mean, is it an outcome that we actually care about, i.e. mortality, quality of life? Um, survival neurologically intact I don't know if SOFA score is that um, I haven't seen a study designed in that way before I'm sure they exist but I haven't seen one I don't know if that's a particularly valid target to look at uh, it's something I'll, I'm going to have to read about I think because um, I'm yeah. just not sure was the assignment of patients to treatments randomized I'm sure it probably was but I yet I can't see anywhere it tells you how it was randomized is there yeah, something in there well it was computer randomization and and blinded. So so the clinicians didn't know, the patient didn't know. Um, consent was done either from the family or retrospectively. Um, but it was a computer randomized study. It wasn't a, a dodgy envelope. No, okay. Okay, I'll believe that. And was the allocation concealed from researchers? And it was, wasn't it? Because like you say, it was it blinded. Was. So presumably yeah. they didn't know who was in what. And so presumably these syringes and everything were were hidden labels and all the rest of it, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. because yeah, that's, that's, that's the next question actually. Were patients, health workers and study personnel blinded? And I think the answer is yes, they were, weren't they? So, yeah. Uh, were the groups similar at the start of the trial is the next question. Uh, looking at factors that might affect the outcome, such as age, sex, social class, and these may be called baseline characteristics. It was well balanced. There wasn't any statistical di big statistical difference in, in the patients' groups or their Apache scores. Oh, uh, yeah, we've got on one and two, haven't we? So just for example, yeah. 
got male sex was 56.2% um, in both arms. So it's slightly weighted towards men, but presumably but, not significantly. I think that's fairly typical of intensive care as well. That. And we tend to be sicker. The mortality in men is, is higher, isn't it? For, for reasons we don't understand. We die younger. <laughs> And uh, we more like to end up in intensive care and we have a hard time. Yeah, I, I've got my own theories on that and it's to do with women, but this is probably a bit I'm going to have to cut out, to be honest with you. Otherwise, no one will listen to my podcast anymore yeah. and I'll end up being talked about <laughs> along with Donald Trump, you know. Trump, so yeah, it's the first thing that went flash past my eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, clap in that. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just work on it. And we'll, I may leave it in, actually. I might leave it in and just see what happens. Uh, okay, so um, yeah, so the um, groups were similar at the start. Nothing too exciting there, and they do they give you a lovely big table in the research paper that tells you all the differences. And if you want to read it, then be my guest. So, aside from experimental intervention, were the groups treated equally? Now, the answer to that is yes, can't tell, or no. Um, again, is that remarked upon? Were the groups treated equally? Um, Certainly, the intention was, wasn't it? Yes, and, and it also importantly, it was an intention to treat study, so they weren't able to, you know, if, if someone didn't get what they were supposed to get, they were still included in the study in the arm that was supposed to be, uh, what they were randomised to in the first place. Okay, talk um, about intention to treat. So it, it essentially means if people drop out of the study or withdraw consent, their data still ends up in the arm that they're randomised to, so you can't cherry pick bits of data right. out of the study to make it look better. Okay. If you get randomised, you go into the study and you stay in the you stay in the study for in terms of um, the statistical measures stop people fiddling the books basically. Okay, so once you're in the study, even if you withdraw for whatever reason, your data still goes in there. Yeah, and statistically, it's, it stops people fiddling the numbers. Moving our way down, were all of the patients who entered the trial properly accounted for at its conclusion? Yes, yeah, so I think I think they were. Something like two dropouts. I think there was a one, one withdrawal of consent, something around that. Yeah, one was excluded three... owing to withdrawal of consent from what I can see. I think there were died. three in total that pulled out of it. Yeah, one had a clinical decision to withhold drug owing to an improvement in condition. So somebody entered the trial and actually got better and presumably didn't leave, need even need levis amending, so that's why. But yeah, they're all accounted for very well in the recruitment and randomization of patients in figure one. Um, and I talk about figure one for those of you who want to get the paper. It is um, free to access at the moment. So go grab it while they're still not trying to charge us for it. So were patients analysed in the groups to which they were randomised? Yeah, right. and that, that goes back to the intention to treat issue, doesn't it? Um, um, there's, there's no cross-contamination cross then, is no. there, presumably? No. So that's the that's the nature of the study, really. So it's, it's uh, at the moment it seems quite a strong one, um, and I'd be very surprised if it wasn't a strong one. Looking at some of the names at the top of the paper and the fact that it's in the New England Journal of Medicine probably um, means that it ranks slightly higher than some of the studies, although that doesn't necessarily um, make it so. But that looks like a reasonably strong study so far. So what are the results? Question seven is how large was the treatment effect? So what? outcomes were measured um, in this particular study so um, so going back to the primary outcome the primary outcome was to detect a 0.5 difference in the safer score yeah um, and the long and short of it there was no statistical difference so um, none so at all was, no, so there's a mean difference of uh, 0.61 
Um, so that had a p-value of 0.53 and a confidence interval that crossed one. So there was no statistical, statistically significant difference. Um, you're going, you're going to have to get better at that word if we're going to keep doing these papers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you're really going to have to work on that. <laughs> yeah, so let's just talk while we can, because I, I struggled for a long time to get my head around these confidence intervals. You say the confidence interval crosses one. What does that mean exactly? So you can use confidence intervals in a similar way as to p-values. So whether a difference is statistically significant or not, or whether that difference is just down to chance or yeah. how much is likely it's due, due to chance. Yeah. And people seem to be airing towards more along the use of confidence intervals these days. So they can be used in two ways, depending on what you're measuring. If you have, say, for mortality, alive, dead, then what you want is the two numbers that you have to not cross zero. Okay. If, you, if, if you're using um, a measure that has a graduation of score, like a SOFA score, uh, so one, two, three, four, five, mm -hmm. then you want both your numbers for the confidence interval not to cross one. Okay. So it's just remembering that they, those two factors. So in the, in this case, for instance, the confidence interval was minus zero point seven to one point two nine, so that it crossed one. So um, which shows it's not statistically significant. The other thing that can be useful for it is if those two numbers are a long way apart. Yeah. Um, it suggests that the, basically the study wasn't powered. Um, there weren't enough people in the study to really show the difference or if the difference is really wide it might mean that if one or two people had crossed into the other group alive yeah. or dead that it would have completely changed the study so it's got um in this case the the confidence intervals are very narrow and and they cross one yeah um, okay. which suggests that really this is a fairly firm finding and the great general explanation i got of confidence intervals and i saw this on a youtube video is that if you if you have an orchard full of apples and you want to see some difference in some of those apples you you can't analyze the whole orchard because there's millions of apples so you take a selection of those apples and you analyze those and your confidence interval is telling you whether that sample of apples is actually representative of the whole population or not and if the sample is too small um then or it's not powered correctly then that sample is not a true representative representation of the total population of apples and therefore can't necessarily necessarily be applied to the whole population does that sound like a reasonable explanation i think you should have given the first explanation mine was probably gobbledygook all right we'll get rid of yours then and i'll get mine <laughs> no but yours <laughs> Yours makes more sense when reading a paper because then you know what numbers to look for. Mine possibly just explains some of the the reasoning behind those numbers, maybe, if you like. So um, confidence intervals for me, I've always I do struggle with. And I think there's probably a lot of other people out there that struggle with them as well. But like you say, if you can try and get the basics in your head. So, you know, if it's a live dead, it doesn't cross zero. If it's got a number to it, then it doesn't cross one. And that's probably a simple rule, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Yeah. OK. And if the I confidence interval is very wide, um, whether it crosses one or not, that might lead you to a certain amount of suspicion as well. Yeah.
Yeah. And if they say there's a 90 percent confidence interval as opposed to a 95 percent confidence interval, the 95 percent confidence interval is probably the more trustworthy figure than the 90 percent confidence interval because you're um, including more of the general population in that. Am I am I thinking yeah. right there? Yeah. OK, great. That's I don't want to bang on too much about confidence intervals, but. I struggle to understand them, so I'm trying to help other people to understand them a little right. bit. I, I think if we go into any more detail, we'll just be showing the holes in our knowledge, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, but in a way, in a way, Gavin, that's I'm happy to do that because I want listeners to realise that I am. We are not the gurus on this. We are trying to learn, and we're trying no, them to learn. We, along we struggle. With well. We learn with every paper. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Okay. So, will the results help locally? So, let's just talk about the results again for a moment. Well, so, the primary well, outcome. That wasn't the only, yeah, that was, that was the primary outcome. There yeah, so, the secondary outcomes. outcomes, and we need to talk about those, don't we? Because we didn't talk about any secondary outcomes when we were talking about the design of the study. So, what were the secondary outcomes they were looking for initially? It was things like catecholamine-free and ventilator-free days, the time yeah. to weaning from mechanical ventilation, the proportion of patients with a major acute kidney event over 28 days um, and the duration of renal replacement therapy, uh, mortality rates at 28 days, ICU discharge and a hospital discharge, as well as the length of stay. So they're fairly standard measures, really, aren't they? Mortality rates, yeah. ICU discharge at hospital discharge. And was there a difference in any of those? Um, there was in some. I mean, the, the other thing, important thing to say about the um, secondary outcomes is that when they're looking to powering the study, that the power the power is applied to the primary outcome so anything that comes from secondary outcome you have to treat a little bit turning cheek and yeah. um, a lot of uh, big investigators will say really if there's something in the secondary outcomes that really is your next research question that, that needs to be studied you can't necessarily say okay this study found that and that is the end of it so you have to take that into consideration. Um, the, the other thing that they also did, they looked at the Apache 2 scores. And for those that don't work in critical care, Apache 2 is a, another scoring system, similar to safer score with more data in it, which is a way of trying to prognosticate death and, and severity of your illness. So they looked at the Apache 2 scores and tried to see if there are any patterns within the severity of people's illnesses um, to see if there was any difference there. And they didn't find that um, when they adjusted the outcomes for the Apache 2 score, that it didn't make any difference to the study. Um, one of the the chief, um, for me, the, the, the biggest secondary outcome, again, tongue-in-cheek again, is the mortality. The mortality there was a three percent mortality difference in the study. However, it didn't meet statistical dif st statistical significance. So the uh, confidence interval on that crossed zero, um, crossed zero, and it was very wide, which essentially means that there weren't enough people in the study to really power. Um, an, an accurate assessment of what the mortality was. However, that there was a 3% mortality difference and it was higher in the levosimending group. Okay, I'm hesitating because I'm just trying to see the mortality figures on here. So the, fi the figure for... So on page nine. Uh, I can't remember because I've got uh, my own critique in front of me and I'm going to... Oh, right. That. Okay. But, um, uh, so yeah. the mortality in placebo was 309 and the mortality in the lever cementing group was 34.5. Okay. Yeah, the confidence interval was huge, and the P... Min minus 4.5 to 11.7, so... Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, okay. so, that there, so there were nowhere near enough people in the study to tell us whether that, that difference is statistically significant. I guess they probably need two or three times that number to actually get, um, give us um, a, a reasonable idea of whether that figure is true or not. Okay. Um, but it, it just make you think, should we be using this drug? But again, it's very tongue-in-cheek. Uh, and what, what I also did, and it's probably not a valid thing to do, if I'm honest, I worked out a number needed to harm based on those figures, and I, I found 26. So potentially, if that figure is accurate, again, tongue-in-cheek, mm. for every 26 patients you'll treat, you may kill someone based yeah. on that figure. Yeah, and that's not kind of figure you're aiming for, really, if you want to sell the drug. No. You know? No, that's not going to fill the drug companies with joy, is it? Okay, no. so let's go on to that's the results really. So we've got a primary outcome where it shows bugger all difference and certainly not a significant one. We've got a secondary outcome where there are some potentially iffy results, but we can't really um, talk about those too much because the study's not powered for them. Um, However, one of one of the secondary endpoints was statistically significant, and that was weaning from ventilation. That oh, really? too was the hazard ratio, which I'm not particularly au fait with, so I'm not going to go into any detail on it. I'll, I should have checked it before I we'll do our homework later. Yeah. Okay. But the hazard ratio was um, 0 0.77, um, and that was with a p-value of 0 0.3, a fairly tight confidence interval as well. So okay. you were less likely to wean from ventilation if you were given levosimending. If you Again, were given. that's not... Yeah, again, that's not something particularly we want we want to hear. But again, it's not powered to um to look at that figure. But it was very significant. Again, for anyone who's listening to this podcast, I think one of the best things you can do, and it's certainly one of the best things I ever did. YouTube is a fabulous tool if you want to understand some of these research terminologies. If you if you type in something like hazard ratios or confidence intervals, there's lots of videos out there. Some start more basic, uh, which I found very useful, and, and work their way up. So I can't recommend highly enough going into YouTube and just typing that into the search bar. And you will find something that will help you understand some of these terms if that's what you want to do. We move on to can the results be applied in your context or to the local population? Do you have reason to believe that your population of interest is different to that in the trial? Top of my head, I would say no, isn't it? Because this is a general ITU septic patient that we see probably week in, week out, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly for me on my unit, well, probably about um, a quarter of the patients, a third of the patients, well, not quite so much as that, but probably about 20% of the patients are from my unit anyway. But it certainly would apply to the kind of patients that I'm using, uh, I'm treating uh, on, on a regular basis. Um, it's a UK population. We're not talking about an, a, another country with a different healthcare system, yeah. different availability of ITU beds and that kind of thing. So it certainly fits the UK general intensive care population. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, that, that question, of course, has, has got to be applied to wherever you're from and what type of patients you have, you know, because if you're working in, I don't know, the middle of Africa, for example, you're probably going to have a whole different population to this one. Okay. So were all clinically important outcomes considered? Is there other information you would like to have seen? Was the need for this trial clearly described? I think the, the groups that were predefined um, for subgroup analysis makes that fairly clear. So the, the, all the secondary endpoints were things that I'd actually be interested in, although, of course, I would have probably have liked to see mortality as the, um, the primary outcome rather than the safer score. But I, 
I, I like say enough that about that. Been a much bigger study as well, potentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, well, it probably would have had to be three or four times the size as well. Yeah, and certainly all the issues such as um, iron trope requirements, then for ventilation, um, increasing need for iron trope. So that there's certainly questions that, that I would be interested in. Yeah. What were the other aspects in that question? Uh, was the need for this trial clearly described? Yeah, so so I, I was just before we started talking, I was reading a, a, a matter analysis of of a meta analysis. There's been something like twenty odd meta analyses done on the levers amended. So there's probably about ten thousand or so patients that have um, been in levers amended trials of various types um, in various situations. I, I wasn't able to go back to see how big any of these studies are, but the, I, I think the these meta-analysis shown have they shown it to be a good drug or what well, 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 all these meta all the meta-analyses that i quickly glanced through showed that there was a risk reduction related to the use of lever cementing so th this trial does fly in the face of um, many of the other studies and meta-analyses that i've looked at i haven't looked at the primary trials i don't know if they're all um, funded by the drug companies and and, and that kind of thing so i, I don't know what's um what biases may have been involved in those trials because there are a lot of them. I think there was around a hundred or something like that altogether. Mm. Um, so, you know, without looking at those studies on an individual basis, I, I can't really lay claim to um, what biases they may have had or how relevant they are. But nearly all those trials, bar one, I think, argued that um, levers mending um, reduced risk whatever the primary outcome of those studies individual studies were but the flip side of that they're probably a very heterogeneous group of studies a lot of it was done in heart failure um some of it was done in cardiac centers so we've got fairly diverse population um there's probably a lot of pharmaceutical drug funding in some of those studies and as the likes of uh John Myberg will claim that meta-analysis is more like metaphysics. You can just fudge the numbers to uh, make up what you want to make if, if that's what you want to do. But this really does probably fly in the face of a lot of the um, other studies that are out there at the moment. Okay. I'm just, I'm just as you were talking about that, I was reading some of the discussion as well. Um, and they do, they do say that mortality in our trial population was lower than in previous studies of levosomendin in patients with septic shock. And they think the difference is that, um, at least in part, a consequence of the fact that we recruited a wide range of patients with sepsis without requiring a low cardiac output as an enrolment criterion. So it could be that they've used levosomending in a population that is very different from those used in the meta-analysis, which is why, which is where the difference might be. Well, certainly some of the chatter on Twitter was that... Um levers cementing isn't dead and that we need to study levers cementing specifically in low cardiac output groups whether that be sepsis or cardiogenic shock hmm. however they did put uh, they did look at the cardiac aspect of the SOFA score in this study and didn't make any difference in that and they did look at cardiac index as a subgroup in this study although obviously you know you got 516 patients you got half of that and then the, card, the low cardiac index group let's just say there was 50 in that group it is it's not powered to um, really look at the question but they did have the, the cardiac index predefined subgroup and there was no difference we investigated levosomendin as added to standard care rather than the comparison of levosomendin with an alternative inotrope such as dobutamine 
rather than a comparison of lever cemented. Oh, okay. So what they're saying is that um, they just did it as lever cemented or not lever cemented, rather than lever cemented versus something else. Less than ten percent yeah, of the patients in the placebo group received dibutamine, although the rate of use in the placebo group was higher than. In so actually, the placebo group could have been having some other drugs that were very much playing a part in the results well, anyway. Well all patients had to be on vasopressors to for four hours to enter the study anyway. Uh -huh. So everybody was on noradrenaline. Uh -huh. um, and, and then... But not everybody was on dibutamine, were they? No, no, only 10% were on dibutamine. Uh -huh. um, going back to some of the meta-analyses that I was quickly scanning over, many of them were comparing levosomendine with dibutamine, yeah. not noradrenaline. Yeah. So that, then you get into another kettle of fish, don't you? Whitney? Do, do you need to compare um, levosomendine with different anotropes and then looking at that whether there's a survival benefit within different subgroups of anotropes and then it gets very um, com um, complicated to try and um, sift out the facts from that. Yeah, and they do, they do say there's no significance in outcome seen in the pre-specified subgroup analysis involving patients with a low cardiac index. However, the number of patients with a measured low cardiac index was small. So uh, once again, that comes to the subgroup analysis of uh, an outcome that the study just wasn't powered for, really. So it's, yeah. you know, you, you, the, the discussion is almost saying there's lots of other things that we could have investigated that we didn't, and maybe we should. And I dare say, if I read hard enough in the discussion, somebody's going to say, we need more studies to be done. I would have thought, I can't see it yet, but I'm sure it'll be in there somewhere. Yeah, and a, and a lot of the Twitter chatter was was essentially... No, we need a similar study in low cardiac output patients specifically. Yeah. Okay. I mean, the other thing that may have made a mortality difference, I don't know how back, how far back all these meta-analyses go, but the drugs, it's not new drugs, been around for 20, 25 years, but we know what mortality for sepsis has reduced since the initial surviving sepsis campaign. That's been shown throughout studies. So it may well just be that you know, these patients are doing better than they were 10 years ago. So comparing them to... Um, data 10 15 years back simply isn't comparing apples and pears no apples for apples i should say all right well are the benefits worth the harms and costs is the final question are the benefits worth the harms and costs um well there aren't any benefits <laughs> that's what the trials just proved no and, and again tongue-in-cheek um subgroups and um, secondary endpoints uh, 26 is a number number needed to harm Hmm. Um, statistically increase difficulty of weaning patients on levosomendin. Well, if, you, if, you, if you're having to wean patients for longer on levosomendin, that's going to increase length of stay, ventilator yeah. days, VAP costs. You know, if you're to believe the study, I don't think there's any gain here. But like you say, um, and like everybody's saying on Twitter, that maybe there's a need for continued study and, you know, levosomendin isn't dead just because of what this trial says. But it just it I think it's probably led it to led us to ask just a few more questions than necessarily it's answered, really. Yeah. Well, the, the alternative um, argument is that, you know, it's just another debut to me for it in a bin. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, it's we think it was the the design of the study is a reasonable design. It's a decently powered study. The the method used is appropriate. Um, the outcomes are uh, measured and um, reflected properly in the figures that they are providing. And ultimately, the primary um, outcome has no difference. 
and the secondary outcomes for which the study isn't powered actually raise a few questions which may need to go on to be studied further. Is that a fair summary, do you think? Yeah, I think it is. I mean, one of the weaknesses I've put on my reviews, the safe score, is certainly something I'm going to have to try and talk to Gavin about to understand why safer score was used and and not another patient-centred endpoint. Um, there may be a very good reason for it, and I'm just too thick to understand it. Yeah. But, um, but for me at the moment, with my current level of understanding, I, I, I would have preferred it being powered for mortality, but I appreciate that probably may, would mean that the study would have to be three or four times the size and probably go on for four or five years. Yeah. And, and possibly if you're too thick to understand the SOFA score, you might be too thick to understand Gavin's answer as well to the question. So I don't know. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, I certainly probably will be. Thanks All for your right. help, buddy. That's been really useful. Enjoyed it as ever. You know, getting together with Gavin like this does rely on us both taking up a bit of our own time in the evenings. And sometimes it feels like a bit of a chore actually sitting down and doing it. But I think Gavin probably agrees that by the end of the conversation we've achieved something worthwhile and it's certainly helping me to go through these papers in a more structured way and try and understand the process of research a little more and why a paper is a good one and why it's a paper might not be so good. I think Gavin did a lot of the legwork on that one so thanks, thanks for that mate. Um, I think he's helping my understanding of the research process as well as helping his own and hopefully helping yours as well. So we're going to continue to do these reasonably regularly, picking out some of the uh, papers that come along out of the slew of papers that seem to come out every day, let alone every week. I've got a few podcasts coming up in the future. Um, none of them are recorded yet, but they're all planned. Um, I am going to be speaking to a dietitian called Danny Bear. We've had some technical problems with that from my end mainly. Um, she is a dietitian who's going to talk to us about the Aspen guidelines. So we've got to get that one in the can yet, but it's going to happen. Um, Danny's been very, very kind and persevering with me, so I'm hoping to record that with her soon. I'm also going to be speaking to a lady called Karen Berger. Um, she is a member of the BACCN committee, and she's going to tell me about um, a non-medical prescribing um uh, evaluation uh, with critical care outreach so it's critical care outreach nurse prescribing a five-year service evaluation which uh, was presented at the BACCN conference this year. Talking of the conference I'm then hopefully going to be speaking to Nikki Credland um, who's also very involved with the British uh, Association of Critical Care Nurses the BACCN and she's going to tell me about that established body and about the conference they had this year so that's what's coming up. Um, just as an added point, this is podcast number 50. Um, I didn't honestly think I would ever get to 50 when I started this process about two and a half years ago now. It's taken me a little bit longer to get to 50 than I expected at the start because when I first started I was recording probably once or twice a week even at my peak. However, um, due to life circumstances and things, I've not been able to record nearly as often as I would have liked over the last year or so really so I hope you're bearing with me I hope you're still finding them useful uh, I do get feedback from time to time if you ever want to leave me feedback the lady at the end of the podcast will tell you how it's lovely to be able to speak to you again and I'll speak to you again soon bye bye you've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner if you would like to comment on any of today's topics find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk tweet us at ccpractitioner Find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes. <laughs>